From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today we sit down with Hallie Wepking as she shares her story of how a Craigslist ad brought her to farming and a unique land transition plan that launched Meadowlark Organics. From a degree in modern dance to stints as a professional cook, Hallie's inspiring journey reminds us to follow our heart and stay open to opportunities. Hallie Wepking and her husband John run Meadowlark Organics, working with Paul Bickford on his 800-acre farm, shifting the focus from organic feed crops to a diversity of food-grade small grains, buckwheat, edible dry beans, and open-pollinated corn. Hallie is mom to two young kids, Henry and Lida, and a grass-fed beef herd, just to make sure she keeps busy. We are here today with Hallie Webking of Meadowlarks Organics. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about your story and the growth of grains and the important role women play in this and all those things in between. And you have an interesting background that perhaps at the time you didn't think you'd end up here, right? <laughs> as as yeah. many of us. But, but tell, tell me where things started for you. Sure. I grew up in central Arizona originally, moved to Texas and went to high school there. I ended up on the East Coast for college where I studied modern dance. So kind of... Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> Farming is a dance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it is it, in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, but from dance, I went into cooking, which also for me felt like a natural transition. It was something physical, something creative, um, and, you know, a different focus. And also, you know, cooking felt like uh, it... it was more relevant to more people. It was, it reached more people, had a, had a greater impact, even though I was working in relatively fancy New York City kitchens. But you didn't have a background in farming, no. say, or grandma's farm nope. during the summer? No, nope, not at all. There, you know, I had a little bit of interaction with a friend from college who was, who went on to farm after she graduated and uh, was farming out in Western Massachusetts. And I found that really appealing, but also didn't feel like that, like I had uh, access to that. Um, I didn't know how to start or what to do exactly. Um, so kind of cooking and getting interested in where food, where our food was coming from in a more direct way, uh, kind of started me on this path. And I met my husband, John cooking, uh, at Prune in New York. And, you know, we had done like the kitchen hustle for a little while and we're at points in our career where we either really had to commit to it or and and decide if we wanted to stay in New York um sure because it's an expensive place to live well, that's a totally different lifestyle there yeah too. yeah for sure and if you're thinking about you know getting married or ha- and having a family it's uh you have to get kind of practical about things 
But at one point he said that, you know, his dream was to move back to southwest Wisconsin where his where he was where he's from um, and where his family had a farm and he wanted to try to manage it. I said, that sounds great. Let's go. <laughs> and so we moved here in 2014 and we moved to Lancaster um, where his family farm is. And we ran a breakfast and lunch cafe. So we were still doing the cook thing, but on um, the farm or in, in town. Town, town. Yeah. And, and also farming, you know, in the afternoons and evenings and weekends. Um, what kinds of things? More crops there? Yeah, so his family farm was around 200 acres, and they had, like, a legacy grass-fed beef operation. Um, All of it was, like, very minimally managed, um, and there was some land that was in CRP or had been in CRP for a long time and some cropland but hadn't been, like, very productive. So we tried out some things there. We grew some edible dry beans that were like <laughs> a terrible weedy mess. You learn you can't hand weed, you know, acres <laughs> worth oh, of beans. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, and, you know, got involved in the cattle herd. Um, but this and, was all new to Yeah, you. this was totally new. And in a lot of ways new to John too. He grew up in Lancaster, but spent a lot of his, his childhood in Milwaukee as well and went to high school in Milwaukee. So it's not like he grew up on that farm even. But when you were there, things started to click. I mean, you felt like you were in the right path. Yeah, for sure. I Yeah. I never had a moment of, like, turning back. And people – it's an easy question to be like, oh, it must have been such a big change going from the city to, you know, sure. southwest Wisconsin, Lancaster, town of 4,000. And it was, but it, was, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was hard work, but we were used to hard work. Um, you were ready, it sounds like, yeah. too. We got the same question when we moved from Chicago here to right. Wisconsin. But – it was a no-brainer. I mean, yeah. but but that brings confidence to what you did. You yeah. know, you, if you were doubting it, maybe it wasn't the right place, right time, or it's right. hard, especially when with people thinking about decisions of when do you jump. Yeah. <laughs> but you too, like when John and I moved here, we're at that same stage where we didn't have kids. You know, we didn't have commitments or responsibilities, so it's sort of like, well, if you're going to try it, try it now, right? Yeah, for sure. If we had, I mean, I can't imagine starting something new. I mean, we're starting new things all the time, but not as not as big uh, with having two kids. It's two from a different kids. place. Yeah. yeah. But basically, we got to a point where I was seven months pregnant, eight months pregnant, um, and we realized that the family farm transition wasn't really going to happen. They weren't ready, and we were, um, which I think often happens. Yeah. And we decided that instead of continuing the restaurant and farming part-time, we were going to find full-time farm employment. That was going to be our goal. And so that's when um, we found Paul Bickford, who had a post on Craigslist. Oh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading that about you. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Kind so, I mean, of strange. The point is you got to keep looking in all places. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what inspired and me. And kudos to him for just putting it out there I know. on Craigslist yeah. of all things. He probably got a range of He yeah, sure did. Replies. You know, he got people who were like, I buy organic food and I like to garden. And he has, you know, a thousand acres. And what was his, his what offer? What was his? Um, he was looking for the next generation to pass down his knowledge. Really, he was really looking for like an associate partner. Sure. Um, ideally, I think he wished that we had brought some more equity to the table, uh, which we we didn't have much of anything. But we had ideas and we had a desire to farm and learn from him. And he's such a good teacher. Um, 
And so, I mean, he loves that. He loves teaching. He loves... That's so... And kudos to him yeah. for taking that risk. Yeah. You never know. For sure. It's a big risk. Yeah. Um, and for both of us, like, all of this has kind of, until very recently, operated mostly on a handshake because our goal is to take over his farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, it's very complicated, but we all we all knew what the end we all know what the end goal is. But the way to get there has not always been clear. So it's like you're we're, really, we're well, committed. You're, you're forging new path. Literally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Both like as far as legal legal pathways to transition because we're non-family. You know, we're not related. Um, and his business structure is kind of unique too because it's an S corp and he's the sole shareholder. So there's some like strange, um, I don't know, hurdles to jump in sure. that way too. And how long has, had he been doing the grains? Um, well, he, when we started farming with him, he had transitioned a few years before to be an organic crop farm. So he was growing a lot of alfalfa, corn, soybeans, and a little bit of small grains just as like a nurse crop for getting his alfalfa stands established. But he wasn't growing anything for the food grade um, markets. And that's what we really brought to his operation, like an emphasis on diversification because, you know, he had like a three to four year rotation. Now we've expanded that to like a six to seven to eight year, depending on where it is in the farm. Um, and what sparked the diversification of the grains? So, yeah, I mean, I think it in part comes from our culinary background and our desire to grow food for people. And we also had access to all of these acres. And there's a certain like, you know, economy of scale that's important to consider when you're growing small grains. Um, It makes sense to grow a a 40 acre field. It doesn't exactly make sense to grow a three acre field, though we have done some trials that are that small, at least with the equipment that we have. Um, we were well positioned to jump into the small grain farming. And also, you know, our farm is in the driftless. It's uh, all basically highly erodible based on the USDA standards. So we really have to take care um, of our topsoil and be conservation farmers. And, you know, we're not perfect. It's a work in progress all the time, obviously. But uh, we try our best to, you know, limit the acres that are in row crops that need intensive tillage or cultivation so and this whole arena of soil health is something you've been learning with paul under paul through paul or you came with some of it but it's it's still new territory yeah i mean it's i think it, it was also new territory to paul too um we you know he's admitted that like he was lucky when he transitioned to organic the organic uh, grain price is really high like corn and soy was really high um but there's a there's so much complexity when you when you transition to organic or in transition to like organic crop production because he had been his land had been in pasture because he was a grass-based dairy for a long time 10 or more years really and so there's i mean I'll, I'll give a shout out to my husband who's like really um, dove deep into the soil health and all of the science behind it and really trying to understand how we as farmers can also be environmentalists and make sure that, you know, the legacy that we leave is one to be proud of um, because it's, it's not something that has, that has really been talked about until maybe the last like 
several years, really. So it's interesting to have begun farming um, at that same time when there's been a real emphasis on soil health, regenerative agriculture, like all of those things have coincided with our really getting started. Yeah. And so is Paul active in the day-to-day business? Okay, so that's part of the whole... Yeah, he definitely is, but he also, you know, is grateful to have other people to take over all of the heavy mental lifting. Um, He likes to drive his tractors and be told what to do. (laughs) So... And how old is he about? He's 63. So he's at the beginning ages of thinking thinking about about retirement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he does ask John when he he can retire. (laughs) (laughs) He says, not today, Paul. <laughs> but Yeah, but what a unique situation, though. To, yeah. and, and, and kudos to him, too, for being open-minded that there's things he still needs to learn. You oh, know, yeah. it's, it's an evolution. It's a process on things. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what you were talking about with your culinary roots and the interest in grains, mm-hmm. is the demand for local grains growing? Yeah. Um, You know, when we were in New York at the Green City Markets, um, there was, this was back in, you know, 2013, maybe. Um, There were a couple of farmers in upstate New York who were selling at the markets and selling whole grains, some flour, and some edible dry beans. And um, grain seems like the last frontier in the farm-to-table movement. Which is sort of funny. It is isn't funny it? because I mean, it's like, like everybody a has staple bread. <laughs> product. Yeah, but most people, you know, they think about vegetables and they think about, um, you know, livestock and meat and eggs and milk and all of these things, which are super great and important. And also there's an opportunity to re-regionalize our grain systems, which is has a has a real impact. It has an economic impact. It has... Um, environmental impact and not every region in the U.S. is exactly ideal to produce 100% of the grain that people demand but there are niche markets there are farmers who are figuring out ways to grow grains in you know like in Maryland in you know so and in California and the amazing thing is there's there is actually historically like a lot of diversity in grain you know grain has been grown all over the world there are different grain crops that thrive in different environments so if we can get away from you know the modern bread varieties and and really focus on um, varieties that are adaptable to each region's climate then there's an opportunity for people to to capture that like regional grain movement do you see a need for education on that realm. I say that oh, yeah. personally because like yeah. you turned me on to spelt. You know, sure. I'm just, I'm a baker, but I'm so used to the basic white flowers. Yeah. And it takes experimentation and practice, but it makes right. so much sense. Yeah, it does. And it does take experimentation and practice. Um, and it's, you know, we're, we are members of the Artisan Grain Collaborative that's based and, out of Chicago. And what is that? So it's a group um, whose goal is to really support uh, regenerative, regeneratively grown grains and, like, build markets for those. So there are lots of different ways that we do that. You know, some of it goes – some of it is about um, educating professional bakers um, and getting grains through that avenue. Some of it is – you know, amateur baking or home baker classes, just like simple, you know, education platforms. Um, Some of it has to do with policy. Um, So it's really kind of a way to have the same goal, but approach many from many different avenues. 
But I think as far as education goes, for sure, uh, I think that's one reason why I really like to do farmer's markets and sell our product directly to people who go home and bake with it is because you can have those conversations. Um, you can give people advice and suggestions and, and explain that it isn't, you know, your regular King Arthur or whatever white flower you might be using. And also get feedback and see what works for people, um, what they find, you know, unique about it and what they value about it, um, which is really a satisfying thing. So what are the grains you grow? We grow a few varieties of wheat. We grow some modern uh, winter wheats and spring wheats, uh, as well as some heritage varieties like turkey red, um, which is a winter wheat, and red fife, which is our spring wheat. And we grow spelt, rye, um, a few different varieties of rye. One that's like uh, supposed to be excellent for baking and milling and distilling, and one that's you know basically the cover crop rye that everybody grows around here. Um, and then so wheat, rye, spelt. Um, so really diversified yeah. within grains. Yeah. And then how you do local milling? I know it at uh-huh. most mill, but how much of a challenge is that for farmers in grains? It's almost like the sure. processing side for meat, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's hugely important. Yeah. Um, mills are really the hubs of all of this. Like, we can't – it's not feasible for every farm to have NB doing that in direct marketing. Like, that just doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, Lonesome Stone. Um, I mean, that's another reason why I think we started growing small grains is because there was that market for it. Mm-hmm. Um when we had our cafe, we were using lonesome stone flour in everything. Um, some people thought the pancakes had too much flavor because we were using local <laughs> flour. Oh, bigger <laughs> problems exist. Yeah. Um, Do you find that, though, on that note? Like, people, they're just unusual flavors. Yeah. Are you so used to blah, blah, Nothing. white bread, right? Yeah. Or- mm-hmm. I mean, even like a vehicle for syrup, um, not, you know, nothing that has like a unique flavor. So, uh, so it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting, but also because Lonesome Stone existed, we knew that we had an opportunity to sell into the food grade market through them. And then we got a value added producers grant, which has helped us to direct market our own flour under our own label. Um, and where are you selling? You mentioned you do some farmer's markets. Yeah, we do a couple of farmer's markets in Madison. Um, and then we have an online store, which we actually sell a lot out of. Um, and you ship then or pick yeah, up? Yeah, ship or pick up at a farm or coordinate delivery. It's not the most organized system right now, but we're working on it. Yeah, and most of your grains are staying relatively regional. Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah Wisconsin, a lot into Illinois, some into Minnesota, some into Iowa. But we do get random orders from, like, California or Florida or... I bet there's people, bakers, who are just curious, you know, just different grains, right? Different textures and and flavors. Yeah, it's similar. I mean, you know, it's a little funny to talk about it this way, but there is, like, a terroir aspect. You know, Mm -hmm. we grow a variety of winter wheat called warthog, and it will be different probably from year to year, but even just, like, compared to the warthog that's grown in upstate New York. And there are bakers who, like, geek out about these things and are curious and want to compare and try them, you know? That's great. So, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool um, movement to be a part of. So how many years have you been now on the farm? We started working – well, John started working for Paul, like, two weeks before our son was born, and he just turned four. Oh, okay. (laughs) And you have another – Yeah, we have a daughter who's 18 months old. All right. And that blends with everything else, right? I mean, as far as the – 
it, the questions always come up in our women farmer work yeah. of, especially women who haven't had, aren't even pregnant yet. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like, how like do you thinking, make that? And I mean, sure. you, you've always had this business with kids, right? So, I mean, it, you're looking at that through one lens, but on the flip side, you've always made it work. Yeah. What, yeah. what advice would you give? I mean, I think, learnings? yeah, I mean, it's important to know your limitations um, mm-hmm. and to ask for help. Uh, and there's, you know, you can't you can't do it all. So, you know, support system is really important. Um, having that set up ahead of time is better than scrambling. <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah, I think uh, speaking to like the limitations thing, it's it's. We're at a time in our business where that's certainly the case. Like, you can only grow so many acres of wheat. You can only market so many pounds of flour. You can only spend so much time doing all these things. Um, So it's, you know, we're constantly looking to the future and thinking about how we can grow our business and also being, you know, taking it a little easy on ourselves and knowing that, like, we can't be on every shelf in every restaurant right now. Like, it's just not feasible. But the end goal is to really be able to develop, like, create enough demand that we're not the only farm who's selling under these, uh, selling under even, like, the Metal Arc Organics label. Like, we would like to be able to contract with other farmers so that they have an opportunity to diversify their rotations and grow these food-grade wheats. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Because you think there's the demand yeah. for it, for sure. Yeah. And then to be able to take more farmers. Yeah. Help them diversify. It. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, in her boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.